Welcome to Mythos Podcast, a journey through world folklore, region by region, country by country. Here you will experience folk tales and legends through music accompanied retellings of traditional lore. With brief introductions, the emphasis is on the stories and the rich landscapes and cultures that birth them. Enjoy the riches of the folk imagination. Welcome to Folklorica Baltica, an exploration of folkloric realms in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Episode 5, The Washerwoman and the Lake Spirits Introduction In this story, we will meet one of Lithuania's most important mythological beings, the Laume. Often connected with water, these fey nature spirits also constitute a link between the mundane world and the underworld of magic and mystery. Their form is variable, perhaps suggesting the scope and depth of their powers. They can appear as beautiful young girls with long tresses, blue eyes, and shapely breasts. They can also appear as crone-like, with huge teeth, long hands, excessive ligaments, iron claws, chicken legs, and horse hooves. These powerful patrons are stronger than the strongest man, and are protectors, patrons of those who perform traditionally female tasks. The fundamental work of washing, weaving, and spinning creating and maintaining the textiles that mean life or death in northern climes. These beings show their power in numbers and appear in groups naked and sublime. Whether maiden or crone, the Laume are powerful creatures of nature, full of the magics of water, woodland, and field. However, it is in their webbed feet that we can see their deeper connection with water. In this story... We will also meet a member of the Lithuanian nobility, a count of great power and wealth. If you were to spy on this count as he regarded himself proudly in a gilded mirror, you would see him adjusting his contouche belt, the most distinctive item of male dress of the Lithuanian and Polish nobility. The count in our story is very well-to-do. He is one who rubs shoulders with the king and queen, and so therefore has particularly luxurious contouche belts. These wide waistbands, at their most expensive, would be made of silk and woven with golden threads, a highly specialized textile produced in Vilnius, the capital city, in dedicated workshops. And if, on that day of your spying, the Count had to conduct business, you would see him stashing official documents and money into his contouche for they all served as pockets. And now, we journey to the great halls of the Lithuanian nobility and the great northern forests of this Baltic nation to meet a washerwoman of great spirit whose patrons are full of earth magics. Glowing Saule wove radiant sunbeams from an amber distaff that June day. 
sultry life food that coursed through millions of miles of vacuum darkness to contour the stately forms of palatial pines and birch, willowy and sinuous. Indeed, blaze-eyed Sole sent these light heralds to shout and laugh amongst the washermaids, whose own song and chatter was life food to each other. And at the edge of this beautiful woodland lake, they were a vision. Woman labor and sprite spryness, all bound up in young flesh. With skirts tucked into belts and sleeves rolled up, they were a landscape of form and beauty. Some sinewy and lithe, like new forest growth, and others round, red and robust. Sun and meadow fed. And they, in the fern-crowded woodland and the glistening lake they washed clothes in, were sprouting, growing, shouting, laughing beings. And as they washed the counts, many garments in the pristine waters, they joked and spoke with both frivolity and serious tones. I will only marry a man who is tall and has blue eyes, said one girl. Ha, you're a bit simple. Unless he is rich, he's useless. The debate resounded in the woodland grove, skating over the waters. And one of the washermaids, the sapling of the lot, sinewy and lithe like new forest growth, stopped suddenly, stood tall, and said, I don't care if I'm showered in all the stolen gold of Lithuania. I don't care if I'm dressed in silks from Vilnius. I'll never marry an old man, and one I don't love. She said it with such force and authority that the others looked at her for a moment, interested by the sudden change of tone. But then the joker of the lot grinned and splashed her with a bit of water. Catch us believing you, she laughed, and the others joined her. What if the illustrious Count himself should ask you to marry him? And they all resumed their washing and rinsing and wringing. Rasha, for that was her name, folded her arms and lifted her chin. I'd rather die than live with that old fossil. The others howled with laughter, and their delight startled birds into a flurry of flapping, which made them jump and then laugh even louder. And with skirts tucked into belts and sleeves rolled up, with forest freedom and breeze freshness, their voices lifted the chins and brows of another presence in that ancient wood. They, too, tittered and splashed with hands, maidenly in the sun, and clawed in shadow. They, too, bantered by the lakeshore, their forms, shadow and light, kin to verdant earth and obsidian underworlds. Naked, glistening maidens during Sole's watch. Their ravine-deep beings also contained the iron claws of the crone. Water beings they were, webbed in foot and magic, and they listened with patronly interest to the heartfelt defiance of Rasha. And merging being and thought with willow branches, they hid, watching her words glide across the water straight into the ears of the Count, who was walking his lands with his simpering steward. How he fumed at the girl's impudent words, old fossil. The Count turned to his steward and said, Tomorrow, bring the youngest of those maids to me. She is far too proud for someone so poor. 
old fossil, indeed. The Count huffed and fumed, but then paused when he saw a reflection of himself in the clear lake. His fine clothes dazzled in the sun, even in that imperfect reflection of the sun. But most of all, what blazed, brazen, prideful contempt into his shoulders and forged them straight and proud, was his contouche. His waist belt of fine silks woven with silver and gold, cranberry red and meadow purple, and night sea blue mingled with threads as radiant as the sun, the moon, and the stars. And while he gazed at his waist belt, woven by a master in the finest workshop in Vilnius, he grinned with cruel knowing. He knew exactly how to handle that washing wench. With the same prideful contempt, the Count watched as a servant brought out his late wife's finest garments, gowns doused in star sparkle and velvet night, silk dresses woven with the very breath and hue of meadow light, of the pink blush and dusk violet of the wildflowers. Into his great hall before his throne, the servants with great care set out beaded necklaces of rich amber, that resin kissed by gods in sunlight, and the deep earth gold of the amber glinted deeply along with bracelets and earrings of purest gold scratched out from deep places in faraway lands. And when the servants had finished laying out his late wife's fineries in the great hall, the count told his servant, bring that proud washerwoman to me. And when Rasha, strong sapling that she was, walked into the hall with gaze downcast, as fit her station. But with posture strong, the Count loathed the straightness of her stance. It was downright vulgar, this pride. So the Count said, with thin lips contemptuously poised, This is your dowry, washerwoman. Will you marry me? And Rasha replied, looking him full in the face, No, sir, I will only marry a man I love. The Count glared as all present in the hall bridled with a silent surprise. He raged inside and gripped the arms of his stately chair. How dare this simple girl refuse him? A bondswoman, even. He had put a roof over her orphan head, fed her, met all her needs for simple service in return. The little bitch pup. But then, an inward sneer manifested itself onto his face and he nodded to himself. She was simply a bondswoman, after all, practically a slave since she received no wages. And without wages, where could she go? With no family, she was completely under his authority. He could do as he pleased. And the Count stood and straightened his contouche, saying, By morning, bondswoman, you will knit me three waistbands. The first, bright as the everlasting sun-mother and he traced the gold threads in his waistband with his pointer finger. The second, he said, will have all the silver glow of the moon. And he traced the silver threads in his waistband with his pointer finger. And the third will be as sparkling white as the stars. 
account paused and watched Rasha's face, noting with pleasure her tear-glistening eyes. That would show her. The wench could knit scarves and serving gowns. But only master craftsmen made contouches for the nobility. And if you fail, he said, I will have your head chopped off. And with a flourish and a flick of his wrist, he waved a command for her departure and then turned his back with smug satisfaction. Rasha left the palace and ran to the lake shore, weeping bitterly. She wept for the mother and father she never knew, and that no one in the world could help her. She wept for the cruelty of being given a task that only the masters of Vilnius could accomplish. And Rasha's weeping lifted the chins and brows of another presence in that ancient wood. They too tittered and splashed with hands maidenly in the sun and clawed in shadow. Their form shadow and light, kin diverted earth and obsidian underworlds. Water beings they were, webbed in foot and magic. Hair golden with Saleh's light song and their eyes abyss blue. Their magic came deep from the crevices where water deeps met other worlds. And they were ready to bestow a boon upon the weeping one. So, imagine Rasha's eye-widening surprise when the naked, web-footed laumes glided over the surface of the lake as if they were ice skating, their toes skimming the surface of the water and creating concentric ripples. Rasha could only gaze wordlessly as they stood ankle-deep in water, soft looks on their beautiful faces. Why do you cry? they asked her. Why do you sigh so heavily? And with a downcast face, Rasha told them all about the old fossil of account and his cruel demands. And just as the telling of her troubles gave her that stomach plummet plunge into weeping, she felt a warm finger lift her chin, and arms around her shoulders and kisses on her golden head, and her skin and her muscles and her heart sighed under their touch. Here is a soft pillow for you, they whispered and hushed, helping her to the ground beside the lake. And such a pillow it was, Rasha thought, having no pillow of her own, never having laid her head upon such downy softness. All the while, the Laumes moved and spoke with mother murmurs, fussing over her with soft tones. And here's a quilt, and here's a shift. Do not grieve, and go to sleep. And she did. And while she slept, the deepening shadows prismed the world, and the Laume magic became crone magic, the cackling power of rough and loving grandmothers of the underworld. It was only time-lengthened hands and iron claws and ligaments like ancient roots surfacing that could handle such power as theirs. Any human eyes watching would be blasted and made to dust, but they hid themselves as they gathered materials from other places, fey places. Sometimes their maiden legs shriveling into rooster legs so they could dash and disappear into unknown lands. 
and sometimes the gentle curvatures of their girlish limbs, rippling with horse muscle. They would gallop with rock-hardened hooves into angled dimensions of austere and hardened power. Rasha opened sleep-bleary eyes to sunlight and shade shifting through a birch's leafy tresses, and then snapped her eyes open in surprise and propped herself up on her elbows to see three contouches, three belts woven from the stuff of sky hanging on the birch's lowest branch, the very essence of night and day, of the celestial sphere's spindle. She blinked to make sure, and still hanging there were those belts, bright as the sun, bright as the moon, bright as the stars. And when the washerwoman brought the belts to the great hall, the contouches delicately draped over her forearms. The count should have been moved, should have seen the magic of fey mothers in threads and patterns that shone with a matronly light. Waist belts made with the swift movements of powerful fingers fed by the moon and star and sun. But his thoughts were not so blessed. He did not see the nimbus of favor on her golden head, and instead, with narrow-eyed knowing and a meager spirit, he merely sniffed with contempt at the beautiful fey garments and said, Very well. You avoid having your head lopped off this time. However, by morning you must bring me a coach that can be hidden away in a nutshell. And when I ride in it, there must be a bright day ahead of me and dark night behind me. And if you do not, I will chop off your hands. For the cruel count could not bear the idea that this bondswoman had woven such beautiful things. And with that, he turned his back to her and left the hall. Rasha ran through the twilight woodland and collapsed by the lake shore, weeping and wringing her hands as if she could rub and squeeze the pain and terror from muscle and tendon. My quick-fingered hands, she sobbed. I'm to part with you tomorrow, and without you, I will not be able to work, to plait my hair, to pick flowers. She thought of scabbed stumps where her hands would be and sobbed again, sobbed from those deep places that compelled maiden fingers towards wildflowers and clear waters. And as she sobbed, the Laumes came again, hair golden with Saule's light song and their eyes abyss blue. Magic that came deep from the crevices where water deeps met other worlds. And again, they were ready to bestow a boon upon the weeping one gliding over the surface of the lake, as silent as ghosts, darting like dragonflies. Again, they fussed and murmured. Some kissed her cheeks, while others combed her hair with a silver comb, and she sobbed out the Count's cruelty. And then, when her eyes began closing with infant complacency and twilight peace, the Laumes placed the soft pillow under her head and laid a quilt on top of her, singing lullabies 
cushioned with verdant earth and obsidian underworlds. And Rasha slept deeply. And again, the complete timeline of womanhood, from maiden fertility to crevice crone wisdom, worked their magic, drew wood and chisel and water from passages unseen, opened ways and byways with cackles and gestures from withered limbs. Drowsy with loma magic and deep nourishing dreams, Rasha awoke to a snort and a stomp. Sitting up in surprise, she laughed at the sight before her beneath the old birch. Dappled in sunlight and shade was a coach carved by the hand of nature itself, for the reliefs of vines and flowers were painted with a palette that did not seem possible. The deep black wrought iron wheels seemed so strong they could go on forever, and a harness was attached to chestnut-colored horses. Rasha was so stunned by the sight that it took her time to realize she was holding something hard in her hand. And when she opened it, what should be in her palm but a nutshell? Before she could examine it, a sunbeam fell on the nutshell, and an extraordinary thing happened. A kind of watery whispering filled the little grove, and the coach and the horse rolled up together into the shape of a roly-poly. And with the same quick movement that the Laumes had across the water, the coach and horses rolled right into the nutshell. Now, the cruel count should have been bowed down and floor-gazed by such a sublime gift. He should have seen fey magic in the impossible craftsmanship of wood, metal, and space and time. He should have accepted defeat in the face of an exquisite coach emerging from a nutshell in a maiden's hand. And when he got into this coach and rode it, seeing blackness behind him and golden light in front of him, truly, he should have been frightened and softened, seeing the handiwork of beings who knew how to draw darkness and light from doorways unknown to man who could fashion equine energy into living, stamping beings with just their intent. But his mean mind had only mean ruts and valleys, darkened crevices where sunlight could not reach. So, when he emerged from the coach, the Count said, sweeping his hand as a judge would, this is all just simple witchcraft. Then, glaring at Rasha, he said, But if you're really that clever, you will bring me a magic mirror in which I can see both my past and my future. And as he again turned his back upon her and began to sweep out of the great hall, he added, And I will decide in the morning if it is your head or your hands. When young Rasha fled to the lake this time, she cried, but not for long. She lay in the soft grass and picked single, fragile blades with numb, unfocused fingers. The only thing weary Rasha could muster were sighs, sighs that came from deep, dark pits of being. She mourned nothing now, 
and all the verdant beauty of the forest became vague in her mind. Now, these sighs of shadow and defeat coursed across the lake waters, and with the liquid gliding of plucked strings, these primitive funeral songs of lung and diaphragm made her water sisters pause. And with heads ablaze with Saleh's light song and their eyes broiling abyss blue, they glided towards the sighing one, eternal concentric circles rippling out beneath their webbed feet on the surface of the water. With this magic, they came deep. They came deep from the crevices where water deeps met other worlds. They were ready to bring this count to his knees. And as they surrounded the girl, clucking and fussing in their mother earthen way, Rasha told them of the magic mirror in weary surrender. The Laume looked at each other, an unspoken knowing between them, that the Count's meanness would continue and continue and continue if they did not put a stop to it. Then, a blaze of understanding broiled in their ocean-deep eyes, and they all turned to the heart-exhausted girl. With one voice they said, It is a difficult task. Your master has set us this time. But never you fear. We will fix it so that after this, the Count will stop plaguing you. Again, they tucked her in and kissed her golden head, and the girl felt the strange lullaby of despair fatigue, and whispered hope lull her into mind twilight. And as she drifted into sleep, she heard the Laumes murmuring strange and beautiful things in low tones amongst themselves. To the bottom, they whispered, to that mud hole, opens into all water, it spreads, uh, seas to all directions, all water and all time, where God walked and brooded in the ever-present. Life, death of star and sunlights magicking the surface. We need primordial power for the water mirror. And the girl fell asleep and dreamed of Leviathan spirits gliding over the surface of Milky Way deeps. And as she slept, the Laume disappeared beneath the lake's waters, seeking a byway of great antiquity. Washerwoman emerged from sleep depths, blinking Loma lullaby magic from her eyes, and had a strange sense of floating, just a sense of it, as if she was floating on the shushing of lake water lapping on the shore, floating on a strange glare of light emanating from the birch tree. She was firmly on the ground, but she felt light. And as her awareness sharpened, Rasha seemed to feel not hear, but feel a deep hum, a crooning purr, perhaps. She felt it in her chest and her limbs, and the source of it was that, that flash of light. Rasha approached the birch tree and saw, set into its lower branches, a mirror, as beautiful as the surface of a sun-drenched sea. And though it was morning, somehow, in its depths, there was reflected the sun and the stars 
and heavenly color she could not name, all reflected in all their brilliance. She took the looking glass, beautiful shining, and held it close to her as she went to face the Count. Now, the Count, if he had any real soul light left in him, should have seen the celestial sphere in primordial depths in that mirror, somehow magicked from water and spirit. He should have seen the infinite concentric circles of God's footsteps on ancient waters, and a vastness of space and light that put both his great hall and his golden-threaded contouche to shame. But as it would be expected, he did not. The Count stepped down from his elevated seat, straightened his waist belt, and snatched the mirror from the girl's hands. And staring into it, a sneering kind of smile emerged on his face, and he said, Ha! There's my uncle playing cards with the king, and my brother talking to the queen. He paused to look at Rasha with narrow eyes, and then continued, Why, I can see my whole noble family in this mirror extraordinary. And with cruel, clipped words, he said to the girl, Do not think you are safe yet, bondswoman. Then, turning back to the mirror in his hands, he said, Now I want to see my future. And with those words, the ambient space of the great hall fell laden with the crushing silence of still depths. The exhale of the mouth cave of a leviathan, it seemed, and even the haughty courtiers instinctually cowered as low as the lowest servant. Rasha watched the Count's face as it gazed into the mirror, and for a second she seemed to see tiny shards of darkness pierce right into his eyes like a needle. A whimper and a tremor coursed through him, and the girl trembled as she watched his skin began to lengthen and sag on his bones, as if some witch crone had put an aging spell on him. Whatever was in that looking glass thinned his blood and his skin so that his whole being seemed to hang like wax. Then, with a sudden pouting rage and with feeble, skinny arms, he threw the mirror on the ground and shattered it. And while the Count rasped commands for everyone to leave, Rasha looked into the shattered pieces of the mirror. On a dead and gnarled tree, on a branch of just the right height where a man could see the ground just beneath his feet but couldn't reach it as he struggled and choked, on such a branch hung the Count stripped to nothing, and with a lengthened neck there was the Count, whose skinny feet had kicked out the last of his impotent desire for life. Rasha looked up at the old man, who now slunk down in his chair. Tell your patrons, he said to her, that I will bother you no more.
glowing sound lace sent mellow light through the autumn-hued leaves, her amber distaff weaving what was left of summer into the clear coolness of the lake breeze. Amidst the crisp air and the yellow-orange canopy were the shouts and chatter and laughter of the washerwomen. Indeed, dulcet-eyed Saule breathed peace on them, and the youngest of them, lithe as willowy birth branches, no longer worried, and smiled at brief glimpses of webbed feet gliding over the water as if it were ice. Stay for a minute, fellow journeyer into Fey worlds, for some updates into this ongoing foray into folkloric realms. Especially if you'd like a little extra magic in your life, aside from the podcast. Now, life here in the mundane world has made it difficult to produce stories on a monthly basis. But now I will have more time and plan to get stories to you monthly, um, and hopefully some shorter episodes um, as well to accompany the normal longer episodes. If you'd like some postcards of folk art that illustrate the stories or have been produced by artists in that country, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com and type in Mythos Podcast. Now, this really helps me get research materials that I need, as well as paying for hosting costs. Um, I'm also planning to add another tier for those of you who would like bi-monthly stories from your hometown, region, or country. And as well as that, because I have you know, resigned from teaching, I, I certainly now have considerably more time to dedicate to the podcast, and I'm really hoping um, to increase the income um, and to make this maybe a bit more full-time of a, of a project. Having said that, I've got big dreams of hosting workshops and folklore to inspire creative work. Um, and maybe even commissioning an artist to create a world map so patrons can receive illustrated cards to add to it as we journey across the globe exploring folktales, which would be, of course, a beautiful addition to um, a studio, a personal office, library. Um, And I'm hoping to start discussing this with potential artists soon. If I can increase my income, I can certainly, you know, get these projects going as well. So please do consider um, becoming a patron, and it would be very helpful indeed. Um, Many, many hours um, of research and writing are put into this podcast, and my plan is to keep it ad-free and absolutely free to the public, and of course, um, you know, to increase the content um, and to do some of these other projects, you know, I certainly need some ex- extra income to do that. So please consider it if you've, you know, really enjoyed, um, you know, particular episodes, but you're not able to um, become a patron at this time. You can also go to my website and just make a small donation if you have really enjoyed a particular episode. And to my current patrons, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I can't express my gratitude enough.